Oh, hey, Danielle, what are you doing in my office? Hey, Paul, uh, do you want to start a podcast? Yeah, sure. Where art thou? Where art thou? Well, that came together quick. Yeah, sure it did. Uh, I forgot to ask, why are we doing this? Well, I thought it was time that we shine a light on the College of Arts here at Guelph. We just have so much going on, and it's time the world knew about our departments. Like the School of Fine Art and Music? And the School of Languages and Literatures. Oh, how about the Department of Philosophy? And the Department of History. What about the School of English, English and, and Theatre Studies? Studies? Cheeks on you. No, you! You can't speak until they say your name, Danielle. Oh, thanks, Paul. Okay, so what do we do now? Well, now I think we have to get a guest. A guest? But who would want to talk to us? Maybe Christina Smilitopoulos. From Art History? Yes, the School of Fine Art and Music. Oh. So she's an associate professor there. Oh, cool. What else is she doing? Well, among a ton of other things, she's also working on something called the Baczynski Chew. Uh, Baczynski who? Baczynski Chew. Gesundheit. <laughs> no, no, it's an art gallery. Uh, I'm pretty sure it might be a mythical beast. No, 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 no. Let's just call her and find out. Alrighty then, let me just get the Skype system modulation okay. set up. Okay. And there we go. Just right. one more, and we're off. Perfect! Hello! Hi! Hey, Christina! How are you? Paul? Paul, is that you? That's me! <laughs> Hi, Danielle. Hi, Paul. Hi. Hi, Christina. Christina, can you answer me one question real quick? How do you pronounce your name, your last name? My last name is uh, Smilitopoulos. It's not as uh, difficult as it first appears. It can be quite intimidating, and everyone should be very thankful that I didn't hyphenate. Oh. Your kids should be thankful for that, and any sports team they may play on. <laughs> there isn't a hockey jersey large enough. No. no. It'd have no. to go down the, the arms, arms, like wrist to wrist. Absolutely. <laughs> so Smilitopoulos. Okay, great. great. So, uh, I think we just want to know a little bit about you and what your role is here. Well, I am an associate professor in the School of Fine Art and Music in the area of art history. And my research area is British art of the long 18th century. But at the moment, I'm actually wearing two hats in the School of Fine Art and Music. I'm also the faculty curator of the Bichinsky Chu Print Study Collection. Okay. Great. Uh, that's what we have a question about. Nobody's sure what a, a Pachinski chew is. Right, or, or what it does chew. Or what it does. Um, well, most people say Gesundheit after I say that out loud. Um, but the Pachinski chew... You stole my joke, by the way. <laughs> Did I? Did you already embed that in the Totally. Yeah, that's, written okay. down. that's all right. This, this is actually a really remarkable resource that we have in the School of Fine Art and Music as well as in the, you know, in the university more broadly. It is an art collection that was built by Walter Baczynski and Jean Chu, and it started 50 years ago, almost to the day. Who are those guys? Uh, these guys were, uh, they're now retired fine arts professors who used to teach in the School of Fine Art and Music. Um, but at the time, they were very active in teaching print processes to their uh, studio students. And both of these professors actually came from artistic tradition that had in their training um, access to a print study collection. And they found it to be incredibly helpful in their uh, in their training. So they started these incredible annual uh, print sales of student work to raise money to make acquisitions. And over the years, the collection has been built and built and built and, and it has grown and grown. 
and it now has over 2,200 works that span uh, the 16th century to almost yesterday. Wow. Wow. Uh, and it shows the technological innovations of print, of the print medium in fine art from uh, for in this period. So, I mean, it's really quite an exciting collection. And in recent years, we have opened up the collection to, um, you know, not only to studio art students, but also to art history students who are keen to develop their skills in uh, collections management and curation. So, uh, so it's been a, a really exciting time. Wow. So, which artists do you have in this collection? Yeah, there's some pretty amazing things. I mean, um, uh, it's it's exciting because because I'm in uh, my area's 18th century art history. I'm actually learning quite a lot about more modern art. And so, I mean, I'm learning a huge amount. But we do have some of the sort of highlights in the collection would be we have uh, two Picasso pieces. We've got um, our oldest piece in the collection is an Albrecht Dürer piece. Wow. Hmm. Um, we have works from Rembrandt and, um, you know, Matisse, Daumier, um, as well as um, Motherwell, Golub, and one of my favorite, we have an, um, almost a complete series of um, Goyas, which has been a really exciting thing for students to examine. Absolutely. Now, how close can they get to these prints? Well, here's, here's what's really exciting. In many of the university art collections, there's, there's lots of rules and regulations about what students can access, and this is for insurance purposes. And, and there's very good reasons for not having students be able to handle works of art um, because of the you know, immense monetary value. But because this is a study collection, and the whole purpose and our mandate is about studying, uh, studying the works themselves, studying the processes at works in making these uh, fantastic fine art prints, but also uh, how do you move objects in space? How do you manage a collection? How do you put you know objects together in a critical way that examines their their various and multifarious you know contexts in very carefully. Very carefully. But you need to learn how to do this. And those opportunities for students are pretty thin on the ground. So because it's a study collection, students get to handle these works far more than they probably would in other collections. Right. Is this type of collection common in other universities or is this truly a unique Guelph experience for these students? I think what's really unique about this particular collection is that it was built by students for students. In other words, although we've had some fantastic um, donor, you know, donations of works in the past, the majority of the collection was created um, or was um, amassed or put together with funds that students actually raised themselves by selling their own work. The student print sale in March. You got it. The one in November and in March, which I go to religiously, and my entire house is basically a result of that. <laughs> I, I have several prints at my house from that I mean, print. It's, really, it's, an, it's a really exciting um, way of engaging the community in the work that the students are doing. It allows you to build an art collection. Even if you don't have a ton of money, people can get engaged in what the artists are producing in a way that's affordable. And it's, and it's really exciting to actually buy a piece from a student. Uh, when I buy pieces during those sales, I try to write to the students and let them know that I've, I've purchased it. And um, because I think it's, it's really exciting for them to know 
that there are people out there that are really enjoying their work. And uh, so, I mean, for them, it means they get to actually have some of their work supported financially, but it also means that they get to contribute to this fantastic collection that they get to use. And of course, we all get to enjoy. Right. Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, I haggle and lowball them all the way. <laughs> so we have very different <laughs> strategies. I have a, a four foot uh, version of the Queen's uh, print of the Queen's head. Ooh. Oh, you know, I almost bought that one. <laughs> Beautiful. I love it. I still have those. Yeah, that's great. There's some really great finds you can find in those print sales. It happens during fair November in the fall and then again during the spring events that are on campus. And, you know, people really look forward to it. They put it in their calendars. They know that they're going to come and buy some things. I, I always blow my budget. You know, it's, it's one of those things where you put some money aside because you know you're going to buy some prints and then inevitably you find more, more work that's really exciting. But, yeah. I mean, yeah. for the past 50 years, we, I mean, this is how the students were able to purchase a Picasso print. Um, this is how they were able to buy, um, you know, a, a work, one of the most recent acquisitions was of Damien Hirst. Mm -hmm. so, um, so, in other words, these artists are, are, are working, they're training, they're examining these pieces, but they're also in the process of building a collection. And so, for me, it's a real honor to be able to uh, help to steward that collection. Now, with that collection, other than being really good art thieves, uh, Bachinsky and Chu, um, how are they able to manage to buy these? Like, knowing that the students were able to raise money. But yes. these yes. things can be pretty pricey. So No, that's a really great point. In the early days of the collection, um, late 60s, early 70s, uh, some of these prints were going you know, I mean, they, they could be purchased fairly inexpensively. They were pretty accessible. And you're, you're quite right. Lately, print has become uh, a lot more popular. And so, you know, we have to be very careful about our acquisitions and, um, and to be strategic in some of these in, in purchasing. And to be fair, we are, in, and to be honest, we haven't made many acquisitions in the last few years. Part of this is because the Bachinsky Chu is going through a bit of a renaissance itself. Um, we're actually this summer beginning some construction to address some of our infrastructure needs within the collection. For example, we are replacing the compact storage unit within the collection so that we can get a little bit more space for our frames work and also um, start to engage more with uh, the faculty and their teaching by creating spaces to build, for example, pedagogy walls where a, a faculty member can say, I want the students to look at a bunch of different examples of lithographs. And so our students can pull that material, place it onto a wall, so that the students can examine really closely that particular technique, you know, at play. So, uh, so I mean, it, it, it's been really exciting lately to be able to um, improve some of those infrastructure parts of the collection to increase the access to the collection. But but what that's meant is we've had to be really careful and really conservative about any kind of acquisition. Hmm. Um, once we have a space, once we have some improved storage, then I think the next thing on the list will be um, some kind of strategic acquisition. You haven't right. mentioned locks or security system, and I'm going to recommend <laughs> that right now. 
Oh yeah, I mean, we, <laughs> not knowing where this is going, yeah. uh, we have security. Okay, good. Good. <laughs> Let everyone know now. <laughs> we absolutely, have security, so do not try to steal from the kitchen. Um, but it, it, I mean, our storage is the main area that we're trying yeah. to improve, right. so that um, you know students can have a little bit more room to maneuver. That we can hang the walls um, critically intellectually mm. as opposed to just in terms of storage wow. right now the, the the framed prints are cheek to gel in a proper 18th century hang but we'd like the students to have a little bit more room to be able to explore the potential of uh, you know more more strategic more um, thematized exhibitions right so I, I can't wrap my brain around the fact that there is a Picasso piece and a Rembrandt piece in Guelph I think that yes. just blows my mind. So how how do how did we acquire that? How do we acquire these types of pieces here in Guelph, Ontario? Yeah, is there a paper trail where it came from? Yeah. Well, in the olden day, in the olden days. In the early, <laughs> are you talking about the eighties? Terrible. In the early days, uh, most of those selections were made through catalogs, and so um, auctioners, um, art dealers. Uh, people who specialized in print would put together these amazing catalogs and send them out. So, um, so you could actually send away for them, and um, and see what was what was available to purchase. So, in you know, in those time periods, um, you know, collecting print wasn't as popular as collecting, say, painting or even works on paper that were uh, drawings or sketches. Uh, print was, uh, I mean, part of the reason why print became so exciting, e even in the period that I study, was because uh, it allowed for people who ordinarily couldn't purchase art um, and be involved in those kinds of aesthetic debates and those aesthetic trends could actually be involved because print was more affordable. Right. So, uh, I mean, those are the kinds of things that um, for a, a print study collection is, is really exciting. If you get to you get to actually look at the print practices of artists who are known more for their painting mm -hmm. than for their experimentation in print. Right. Now, if it is the print study collection, so it is 100% only prints. Um, well, I, I, it's not entirely true. We do have some outliers. We've got um, a pastel work, which is very interesting, and we're still sort of tracking artists and, and some um, attribution issues with, with that particular piece. We've also got um, a painting that's been donated that we're, uh, we're not entirely sure what to do with. <laughs> but for the most part, then, you know, I would say like 98% of the collection is focused on print. And this is really exciting for the University of Guelph because we have a, a working print studio in our, in our um, art school. And not every university has that. So, I mean, they, they really are, are quite symbiotic, and we're, we're excited to make them even more symbiotic in the years to come. Now, what would you say is the oldest hmm. piece that you have? The oldest piece we have is a piece from the um, one of the Small Passion series of Albrecht Dürer. And the small passion series were small, very intimate little engravings, copper plate engravings, mm -hmm. of scenes from Christ's passion, mm -hmm. um, the the events leading up to his um, his death. 
and it's an absolutely charming little piece. Um, it's it's really beautifully done. So that one, I, I can't I'm, I can't remember the exact date on that one, but that is our our you know sort of the oldest. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. I remember being in art history, and Albert Durer he always kind of um, uh, when he did a self portrait, it would be always done in the style of looking like Jesus. He well, I mean, really he, loved himself. Yeah, he's a deeply <laughs> spiritual yeah. man. He's a very important uh, figure in the Northern Renaissance. Um, and uh, and so having a piece of his in our collection is uh, is really exciting. Would that be pre-Gutenberg Press? It's uh, 1509 is the yeah. date, just remembered. Uh, and it is... The piece is actually the nailing to the cross as part of that small passion series. Okay. And it's actually, I, I said it was a copper plate engraving, but I'm incorrect. It's actually a woodcut. Oh, oh okay. yeah, yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's a really lovely, um, lovely woodcut. And so students get a sense of sort of the beginning stages of the 16th century when print became more popular with artists as a medium by which they could have a, you know, disseminate their work with a longer reach. Oh, they, they could see how art was made with a Wi-Fi yeah. or Photoshop. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the kind of exchanges that happened in Renaissance Italy and in, you know, in a northern Renaissance in Nuremberg, um, you know, a paintings and frescoes, etc., they're not portable. They're not as, as much. And so having, um, you know, print, studies in print, uh, allowed them to exchange ideas in ways that were unprecedented. So can you tell us, out of curiosity, which piece actually has the highest value? Um, I actually am not going to tell you that, mostly for security <laughs> reasons. So we, we have, um, what I will say, though, is that our prints are, uh, you know, incredibly valuable intellectually and in terms of training. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot that goes into value, particularly uh, with prints, um, what kind of condition the paper is in, what kind of uh, condition the actual print is in, what state of the print it is, right. is it an, an artist proof, is it something that's been corrected over the course of the development of the matrix? I mean, there's lots that go into Corrected value. over the development of its matrix, meaning Correct. people have... It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I went cross-eyed <laughs> when you said it. <laughs> now, um, what does that mean? Like people forging or fixing it or... No, an artist that they go through, I mean, just like with, um, with you know, if you're sketching or drawing and you have, for example, uh, you want to make a correction, um, you might do a test print run um, uh, and, and see sort of how everything looks. Oh, okay, okay. And then what that results in is a print from various states of the process. And okay. so uh, a, a print that is the result of early stages may not be as fine as something that the artist has actually changed. I thought you meant so, over time someone had corrected, like, uh, this guy needs a red hat. There's well, not enough balloons have, in this picture. We do have those as well, which yeah. is kind of exciting. Um, I work on a, um, a publisher whose name is Thomas Pegg, who's not terribly well respected in, um, in history because one of the things that he liked to do was to buy up old, worn-out copper plates and reprint old engravings uh, to make money. That's brilliant. Yeah. I know. That's <laughs> not, not exactly um, terribly respected 
as a as a print publisher, but nonetheless, a fantastic business model. Like that Rodney Dangerfield of the fine art print industry. No respect. No respect. <laughs> All right, cool. So, um, well, now that we see what the state of the Chinsky Chew is and what, and it, what it is, got there, yep. what what are we going to do with this thing? We've got some renovations coming up. Uh, anything else? Oh. oh, okay. Oh. Um, I think that was by accident. Maybe you shouldn't have asked the money question. Maybe you shouldn't ask such long questions, Paul. Oh, just kidding, listeners. Uh, due to technical difficulties, we lost connection via Skype. But not to worry, she will be back for a part two in another episode, so stay tuned for that. Additionally, we also have some upcoming events for you to mark in your calendars. In early September, we have the Eden Mills Writers Festival, and the beginning of October, we have Griffin's Read, which will be Eden Robinson's Son of a Trickster. Make sure you grab your books. Well, super. Thank you so much, Danielle. And I'd like to thank all the listeners for enjoying our first pilot episode of Where Arts Thou? Don't forget to rate, review, share, and subscribe. And follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at UOG underscore arts. Anything else College of Arts related, check out our website at uoguelph.ca slash arts. We'll see you real soon. Stay artsy. Or not. You don't have to. Where arts thou? Where arts thou?